Welcome to the Biome Podcast. My name is Graham and I am your host for this episode. Firstly, I want to thank the new members that have signed up for the Biome membership. Your contributions will be put towards saving the survivors Rhino Rescue. Now, these amazing people help rescue rhinos that have been left for dead after being poached. While most rhinos are unfortunately killed, a few are able to be found and saved um, after they've been poached. Um, these rhinos are invaluable for the life that they are, as well as the genetic material that they hold. And the Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue attempts to rehabilitate them, as well as do any surgeries required for their life, so that their genetic material isn't lost and they can still help their species. Just some housekeeping before we get into the episode. Due to changing hosts, our site and store might be offline uh, for various or at various times throughout the next two weeks. But it will be back with even more content and better content and fun resources um, fairly soon. We're migrating to a different host as mentioned, so there may be moments where things are down for a short while. But don't stress, we are working on it. Now, this episode does look at some of the more uh, economically important invertebrates in the world. So with that, let's dive into the Animal Spotlight. Welcome to the Animal Spotlight section of the podcast. Here, we usually explore the life of one of the world's most most interesting animals, so basically one of the world's um, animals. But today, in honor of the coming of spring, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, we will be looking at a group of animals, something that really highlights the joys of spring. Today, we will be looking at bees. Now, bees are extraordinary insects that play a crucial role in the ecosystem particularly in the process of pollination. With over 20,000 known species found across the globe, bees display a remarkable variety of appearances, habitats, and behaviors. So, first things first, what are bees? Bees belong to the superfamily Apoidea within the order Hymenoptera, which also includes ants and wasps. They are essentially pollinators responsible for fertilizing flowers by transferring pollen from the male reproductive organs to the female reproductive organs of plants. This process enables the production of fruits, seeds, and ultimately new plants. Bees' role in pollination is vital to the survival of many plant species and contributes to the world's food production. So what do bees look like? This one is a bit tougher to... Um, to answer since there are over 20,000 species. But let's look at it. Though bees come in a variety of shapes, sizes, and colors, they typically share some common characteristics. Most bees have two pairs of wings, with the front and rear wings hooking together during flight to form a single surface for greater lift. They have three distinct body segments, the head, thorax, and the abdomen. The head features large compound eyes, antenna for detecting smells and sounds, and specialized mouth parts adapting for feeding on nectar and pollen. Many bees also possess a sting, which is a modified ovipositor used for defense. 
Before we get too deep into bees though, let's look at what an ovipositor is so that we're all on the same page. An ovipositor is a specialized tubular organ found in female insects and even some arachnids. It's used for laying eggs. The structure is particularly common amongst insects belonging to the order Hymenoptera, which includes your ants, your bees, and your wasps. Now, the ovipositor is typically located at the end of the abdomen and can vary in size, shape, and complexity depending on the species. In some insects, the ovipositor has adapted to serve additional functions beyond egg laying. For example, in many species of parasitic wasps, the ovipositor has been modified into a long needle-like structure used to inject eggs into the body or eggs of their host organisms. In the case of female bees and some different other types of wasps, the ovipositor has been adapted into a sting, which is uh, used for defense purposes by injecting venom into potential predators or threats. Bees exhibit a range of colors, uh, patterns and can include black, brown, yellow, and a metallic green or even blue. Some species of bees have bands or stripes on their bodies, while others are a solid color. The bee's body is often covered in fine hairs, which help with collecting and transporting pollen. Now, some stunning bee species to look into or to look at through, uh, if you want to Google it, for example, um, are the gold green sweat bees. Now, sweat bees are a diverse group of small, often metallic colored bees belonging to the family um, Halicidae. They are found in various habitats worldwide, including North and South America, Europe, Asia, and even Africa. Sweat bees play an important role as pollinators of wildflowers and some agricultural crops. Now, the name sweat bee Probably not the most attractive name, but it is um, it is important. The name sweat bee comes from their attraction to human sweat, which they consume to obtain salts and other essential minerals. Although this sting is usually less painful than that of other bees, some people experience mild to moderate discomfort if stung by a sweat bee. Now, sweat bees exhibit a wide range of social behaviors, from solitary to communal nesting, some species live and work independently, while others may form small communal nests where multiple females share the same nest and care for their offspring together. Some species of sweat bees even display semi-social or eusocial behaviors, with the division of labor between reproductive and non-reproductive individuals. Another great one is the neon cocoon bee, uh, sorry, neon cuckoo bee. Cuckoo bees are a group of parasitic bees that belong to several bee families. These bees get their name from the cuckoo bird, which is known for laying eggs in the nests of other bird species. Similarly, cuckoo bees lay their eggs in the nests of other bees, typically a specific host species. Cuckoo bees differ from other bees in that they do not collect pollen and they don't build their own nests. Instead, they rely on the host bee species to rear their offspring. The female cuckoo bee searches for the nest of a suitable host, then lays her eggs in the host's nest, often after consuming or removing the host's eggs or larva. Once the cuckoo bee's eggs hatch, the larva feeds on the pollen and nectar provisions that the host bee has stored for its own offspring. In terms of appearance, cuckoo bees are often different from their host species. 
they may have a more robust and less hairy body compared to other bees, as they don't need to collect uh, pollen. Many cuckoo bees also lack pollen-carrying structures called scopa, which are present in most female bees. Now, the cuckoo bees are generally more difficult to spot than other bees, as they do not forage on flowers and often are more secretive um, due to their parasitic lifestyle. But if you look at the neon cuckoo bee, it's very attractive neon blue over a black body. The last one I'll suggest that you look into are orchid bees. Now, orchid bees are a group of brightly colored, medium to large sized bees belonging to the tribe's um, Euglossinae, my apologies, which is part of the family Apidae. They are native to the tropical and subtropical regions of the Americas, ranging from Central America to parts of South America. Orchid bees are known for their striking metallic colors, often displaying shades of green, blue, and even gold. One of the most fascinating aspects of orchid bees is their relationship, obviously, with orchids. Male orchid bees are known to collect and store volatile compounds, also known as fragrances or scents from various sources, including flowers like orchids. These fragrances are collected using specialized structures on the bee's hind legs called hind tibial tufts. Now the males, male bees use um, these collected fragrances for a multitude of purposes, but of which one of them is attracting females for mating. Basically, they wear their own cologne. Many orchid species have adapted intricate mechanisms to attract male orchid bees, relying on these bees specifically for pollination. Now, the orchids may produce alluring scents that are specifically targeted to attract male bees, and they may also possess specialized floral structures that accommodate the bees while they collect the fragrances. This mutualistic relationship between orchid bees and orchids results in the pollination of the orchids, while the bees benefit from the scents they collect. Orchid bees also collect nectar and pollen from other flowers for nourishment. However, their unique relationship with orchids specifically and their striking appearance make them stand out amongst other bee species. Now, while you look at images of those three types of beautiful bees, let's dive into habitat and preferred environment. Bees are found across the globe, inhabiting every continent except Antarctica. They thrive in a variety of environments, including forests, grasslands, deserts, and even urban gardens. However, bees generally prefer habitats with an abundance of flowering plants, as these provide them with their primary food source, which is nectar and pollen. Even the cuckoo bee would prefer these kinds of areas um, or areas with an abundance of pollen because the bees whose nests they parasitize are obviously found in these particular areas. Different bee species have varying different nesting preferences. While social bees like honeybees and bumblebees build large communal nests, most bee species are actually solitary and construct individual nests. Solitary bees may dig burrows in the ground, utilize existing cavities in wood or plant stems, or they'll even build nests from materials such as mud or plant fibers. Now, the life cycle of a bee consists of four main stages, the egg, the larva, the pupa, and the adult. In typical bee, or in a typical bee colony, there are three castes, the queen, the workers, and the drones. 
The queen's primary role is to lay eggs, while the workers perform various tasks, such as foraging for food, caring for, caring for the brood, and maintaining the nest. Drones are the male bees, whose sole purpose is to mate with the queen. The queen lays eggs in individual cells. Now we're talking specifically of um, eusocial behavior. So these are your honeybees and your bumblebees. The queen lays eggs in individual cells within the nest. After a few days, these eggs hatch into larvae, which are fed by the worker bees. If the queen is just starting out, then likely the queen would be the one that would um, feed the larvae. But once the, the colony reaches a certain size, the queen doesn't actually have to do that anymore. Once the larvae, however, reach a certain size, they spin a cocoon and undergo metamorphosis, transforming into a pupa. During this stage, the pupa develops into adult bees, much like a, uh, a butterfly does when it goes through the cocoon stage. Now, the pupa develop into the adult bees, complete with wings, legs, and functional reproductive organs. Finally, the adult bees emerge from their cocoons and take on their respective roles within the colony. Queen bees play a pivotal role in the complex social structure of honeybee colonies. As the mother of all colony members, the queen is responsible for laying eggs and ensuring the continuity of the hive. However, her role goes beyond mere reproduction. She's also tasked with maintaining order and preventing worker bees from revolting. Let's explore this um, a little bit more and have a look at the mechanisms employed by the queen bees to control their workers and maintain harmony within the colony. One of the primary ways that queen bees control their workers is through the use of a pheromone. These chemical signals, known as the queen mandibular pheromones, or the QMP, are secreted by the queen and helped re help regulate the behavior of the worker bees. They inhibit ovary reproduction. The QMP inhibits the development of the worker bees' ovaries, preventing them from becoming reproductive and egg-laying. By suppressing the reproductive potential of worker bees, the queen ensures her own position as the sole egg layer of the colony. The queen also suppresses other queen rearings. So queen pheromones also play a role in suppressing the rearing of new queens. When the level of QMP is sufficient, worker bees are less likely to build queen cells and review, uh, sorry, rear new queens, thereby minimizing the chances of a potential revolt or swarm, but we'll look into that in a sec. The QMP also, apart from having reproductive control, influences the behavior of worker bees. The pheromones contribute to the division of labor within the colony, affecting tasks such as foraging, brood care, and defense. So there's the pheromonal suppression, but then there's also physical suppression. So in addition to pheromonal control, queen bees sometimes employ physical tactics to maintain order within the colony. They eliminate rival queens. So after a new queen emerges, she must eliminate potential rivals to secure her position. This process, known as queen dueling, involves the new queen seeking out and killing other queen candidates, usually by stinging them. Now, policing workers. Worker bees may sometimes lay eggs in the absence of a functional queen or when the queen's pheromones are basically insufficient. However, other workers in the colony often detect and remove these eggs through a pro process called worker policing. 
This behavior helps maintain the queen's reproductive monopoly and prevents any single worker from gaining an advantage. Now, if none of these work, none of these, the physical suppression or the, um, the pheromonal suppression, then swarming is a natural process in which the colony divides and a portion of the colony, including the old queen, leaves to establish a new nest. Before swarming occurs, the colony raises several new queen candidates to replace the departing queen. Swarming can be considered a form of revolt prevention as it helps reduce overcrowding and competition for resources within the particular colony. Having such massive colonies as bees can, there must be some kind of communication occurring, even more so than the QMP that the queen uses. One such method is the dance language, often employed by bees to convey information around food source or their fellow, uh, to their fellow colony members. Let's explore the intriguing world of bee communication through dance, though, focusing on the honeybee's waggle dance, its purpose and the underlying mechanisms that enable such an extraordinary form of communication. So let's start with, what is the waggle dance? The waggle dance is a unique form of communication observed primarily in honeybees. It was first decoded and described in detail by the Austrian ethnologist Carl von Frisch in the 1940s and the 1950s. The dance is performed by a forage bee that has located a food source, such as a patch of flowers, and they wish to convey the location of the source to their fellow colony members. The waggle dance comprises of a series of specific movements that provide information about the distance, direction, and quality of the food. So what are the components of the waggle dance? The waggle dance consists of three primary components, the waggle run, the return phase, and the circle phase. So let's look into the waggle run. The forager bee performs a straight line run while vigorously waggling its abdomen from side to side. The duration of the waggle run is proportional to the distance of the food from the hive. The longer the waggle run indicates the more distant food source. The return phase. After completing the waggle run, the bee turns and returns to the starting point of the dance. The angle of the return phase relative to the waggle run conveys information about the direction of the food source in relation to the sun. And then the circle phase. Once returning to the starting point, the bee performs a circular movement to the left or right before starting another waggle run. The direction of the circle phase can vary, but the overall dance pattern resembles a figure eight. So what is the dance floor if this is the dance? Well, the waggle dance takes place on the vertical surface of the honeycomb within the hive, often referred to as the dance floor. The orientation of the dance floor plays a crucial role in accurately conveying the direction of the food source. When the dance is performed on a vertical surface, the angle between the waggle run and the vertical axis represents the angle between the food source and the sun's position in the sky. So this allows the observing bees to decode the direction of the food source with remarkable accuracy. The waggle dance is a rich form of communication that can be considered a language in its own right. It enables bees to transmit complex information about the environment and helps coordinate foraging efforts amongst other colony members. In addition to the waggle dance, honeybees also perform other types of dances, such as the tremble dance and the round dance, 
which convey different types of information and specific purposes within the colony's communication system. But I think we're going to end the animal spotlight section here. Um, we will see you very shortly for the technical section in a few moments. Welcome to the technical section. Now, in this section, we look into some theory, concept, or idea found in the animal kingdom. Like talking about bees in the previous section to celebrate the coming of spring around here in the Northern Hemisphere, we will be looking into pollination in this episode. Now, pollination is a fundamental process in the life cycle of many plants, enabling their reproduction and production of seeds or fruit. As a keystone process in ecosystems, pollination can play a crucial role in maintaining biodiversity and ensuring the success of global food production. This section will delve into the mechanisms of pollination, the significance of pollinators, and the far-reaching applications of pollination both natural, um, in both natural and human agriculture. Now, what is the mechanism of pollination? Pollination is the transfer of pollen from one male reproductive organ, the anther, to a uh, flower with a female reproductive organ, a stigma. It could be on the same flower or a different flower. Now, this process allows plants to reproduce uh, seeds and fruit, ensuring the continuation of their species. There are two primary types of pollination, self-pollination and cross-pollination. Self-pollination is the process um, that occurs when pollen from a flower's anther is transferred to the stigma on the same flower or another flower on the same plant. So it's basically a plant pollinating itself. When pollination is relatively simple or self-pollination is relatively simple, it can limit genetic diversity within the population but we'll look at that in a few minutes now cross-pollination this process involves the transfer of pollen from the anther of one flower to the stigma of a different flower on a separate plant cross-pollination obviously promotes genetic diversity and has or is essential for the reproduction of many plants there are several ways cross-pollination can occur which can be broadly categorized into two groups, the abiotic or the non-medical mediated method and the biotic or the animal mediated method. Let's look quickly into the abiotic cross-pollination. So there's two factors that seem to have um, an effect on abiotic cross-pollination. The first one is wind pollination. Some plants rely on wind for cross-pollination. These plants typically produce small, inconspicuous flowers that generate large quantities of lightweight pollen. As the wind blows, it carries the pollen from one flower to another. An example of wind-pollinated plants include many grasses, conifers, and some deciduous trees. The other option or is uh, water pollination. And this one is, although rare, some aquatic plants such as seagrasses and pondweeds utilize water for cross-pollination. The pollination is, or the pollen is released into the water where currents or tides facilitate the transfer to the stigmas of other flowers. 
But we are a zoology podcast, so let's get back into the biotic cross-pollination. There's a few different options here. Insect pollination. Insects such as bees, butterflies, moths, flies, and beetles are the most common and effective pollinators for any flowering plant. And while visiting flowers, they collect nectar and pollen for food, insects inadvertently transfer pollen from one flower to another, which facilitates cross-pollination. Another option is bird pollination. Certain bird species, such as hummingbirds and sunbirds, are important pollinators for some plants, particularly those with brightly colored tubular flowers, which contain nectar at the bottom. As birds feed on the nectar, they come into contact with the pollen and transfer it to other flowers. The third option is bat pollination. Bats can be significant pollinators, especially in tropical and desert ecosystems. Many plants pollinated by bats produce normal, oh, nocturnal flowers with strong, um, sweet scents to attract them. As bats visit these flowers for the nectar or pollen, they inadvertently transfer pollen to other flowers. The fourth and final option is mammalian pollination. Granted, some, well, bats are mammals, but these require their own category. Some small animals, such as rodents and marsupials, also contribute to cross-pollination. Plants pollinated by mammals often have robust, easily accessible flowers, which produce copious amounts of nectar or pollen. Self-pollination and cross-pollination are two distinct mechanisms through which plants reproduce. Each method offers its own specific benefits that cater to the unique characteristics and requirements of the different plant species. So let's look at self-pollination first. Reproductive assurance. One of the many benefits of self-pollination is that it ensures reproduction in the absence of pollinators or compatible mates. In this way, self-pollinating plants can reproduce even in environments where pollinators are scarce or the plant population is isolated. The other option is the lower energy expenditure of self-pollination. Self-pollination generally requires less energy investment compared to cross-pollinators. This is because self-pollinating plants do not need to produce as many flowers, nectar or scent to attract pollinators. As pollination occurs within the same flower or between flowers on the same plant. Now, the third comparison uh, for self-pollination is adaptation to stable environments. Self-pollination can be advantageous when or in stable environments where existing traits of a plant are already well suited to prevailing conditions. By reproducing with the same genetic material, self-pollinators plants maintain these traits obviously ensuring the survival and adaptation in their habitat but what about cross-pollination you know the kind that actually requires animal input well genetic diversity some of the positives for cross-pollination is genetic diversity for example cross-pollination promotes genetic diversity by combining the genetic material of two different plants which can lead to offspring with new traits and adaptations. This increased genetic diversity makes plant 
populations more resilient to environmental changes and less susceptible to disease, pests and other threats. Improved plant vigor, so the genetic recombination resulting from cross-pollination can lead to offspring with increased vigor, such as a hybrid vigor or heterosis. Plants produced through cross-pollination may exhibit improved growth and survival rate, as well as overall performance compared to their self-pollinated counterparts. Adaptations to changing environments. Cross-pollination allows plant populations to adapt more effectively to changing environment conditions. As genetic diversity increases, the chances of offspring passing traits that that will enable them to survive and thrive in new conditions also increases. So let's look at the role of pollinators. While some plants rely on wind or water for pollination, a vast majority of flowering plants depend on animals, primarily insects, for the transfer of pollen. Now, these pollinators play a crucial role in in the process of uh, pollination. Some insect pollinators that we've spoken about before are bees, butterflies, moths, beetles, flies, and a certain number of other insects that are among the most common and effective pollinators. They visit flowers to collect nectar and pollen for food, and in the process, they inadvertently rub pollen off from one flower to another. Likewise, there are vertebrate pollinators. Birds, bats, and small animals can also act as pollinators for some various plant species. These vertebrate pollinators are especially important in certain ecosystems such as tropical rainforests and desert environments. But what is the importance of pollination anyway? Pollination is a vital process with far-reaching implications on both natural ecosystems and human agriculture. Now, pollination plays a vital role in maintaining the health and functionality of ecosystems. As a critical process in the life of many plants, pollination has far-reaching implications for biodiversity, food webs, and the overall stability of ecosystems. The importance of pollination in ecosystems can be examined through several key aspects. So, plant reproduction. Pollination enables the reproduction of a vast majority of flowering plants. By facilitating the transfer of pollen from one flower to another, pollination allows plants to produce seeds and fruit, ensuring the continuation of their species and the persistence of plant populations within ecosystems. Biodiversity. Pollination contributes to the maintenance of biodiversity by supporting the survival and reproduction of various plant species. Diverse plant communities, in turn, provide habitat, shelter, and resources for a wide range of um, animal species, including insects, birds, mammals, and other organisms. Pollination thus indirectly influences the diversity and abundance of animal species within the ecosystem. In terms of food webs, Pollination has a significant impact on the food web within ecosystems as well. Many animal species, from insects to mammals, rely on the fruits, seeds, and other plant-derived resources that result from pollination. As a keystone process, pollination 
influences the availability of these resources, which affects the um, population of herbivores, predators, and decomposers within an ecosystem. Ecosystem service. Now, pollination supports various ecosystem services, which are the benefits that humans derive from ecosystems. For example, pollination is essential for the production of many cops, uh, sorry, crops, timber, and non-timber forest products, including or contributing to human food security and livelihoods. Pollination also plays a role in maintaining soil fertility. Ecosystem health. Pollination ensures that the reproduction of many species, which uh, in which turn provide food and shelter for the various other organisms. This interconnected relationship contributes to the maintenance and biodiversity and the overall health of ecosystems. In terms of food production, pollination is essential for the production of many crops that humans rely on for food. It's an estimated or it is estimated that about 75% of global crop species depend on animal pollination making pollinators indispensable for global food security. Touching on global food security, we're also looking at the economic significance. The economic value of pollination services uh, provided by pollinators, particularly bees, is immense. In the United States alone, the annual value of insect pollinated crops is estimated to be over uh, $20 billion. Too many zeros there. In recent years, though, there has been growing concern over the decline of pollinators, uh, pollinator populations, primarily due to habitat loss, pesticide use, and the spread of diseases and parasites. Now, the loss of pollinators has the potential to significantly impact both natural ecosystems and human agriculture. And as a result, conservation efforts aimed at preserving and restoring pollinator habitats, such as reducing um, pesticide exposure and promoting sustainable agricultural practices, are of the utmost importance. What happens to a flower once it gets pollinated, once the pollination dust is left over. Once pollination has occurred, a lot of things happen within the plant and they all happen very quickly. So let's take a look. Fertilization. Once the flower has been significantly pollinated, the pollen grain germinates on the stigma and forms a pollen tube that grows through the style towards the ovaries. The sperm cells present within the pollen grain travel down the pollen tube, ultimately reaching the ovules housed within the ovary. Now, have you ever heard of something called double fertilization? This is found in angiosperms, which are your flowering plants, and it's a unique process called double fertilization. One cell, one sperm cell, fuses with the egg to form a zygote, which will then develop into an embryo. The other sperm cells fuse with two polar nuclei to create the endosperm, which serves as the source of nourishment for the developing embryos. Then there's seed formation. Following fertilization, the zygote undergoes cell division and differentiation to form the embryo, while the surrounding ovules develop into the seed coat. The endosperm or other nutritive tissue provides sustenance to the embryo and 
during specifically during its development. So let's look into embryo development. The fertilized ovule develops into a seed containing the embryo, which will eventually give rise to a new plant. The process of embryo development involves several critical stages. Cell division, which is following up fertilization, the zygote undergoes a series of cell divisions, giving rise to a multicellular embryo. Differentiation is another option. As the embryo continues to grow, all cells differentiate into various specialized tissues, such as the shoot um, apical meristem, the root apical meristem, and the cotyledons, which are your seed leaves. In, then there's seed maturation. So the maturation process of the seed involving the desiccation and hardening of the seed coat, as well as the accumulation of nutrients within the endosperm or cotyledons. Upon maturation, the seed becomes dormant, awaiting the right conditions for germin uh, germination. So concurrent seed development is the ovaries of the flower undergo significant changes um, or concurrent with seed development rather, the ovaries of the flower undergo significant changes to form a fruit which serves to protect and disperse the seed. Fruit development. Following fertilization, hormonal changes in the plant trigger the transformation of the ovaries into a fruit. The ovary wall thickens and may change in color, texture and composition depending on the style of fruit being formed. In terms of what types of fruit there are, Fruits can be classified into various categories based on their structure and development. Some common types include simple fruits, which are your grapes and your droops, aggregate fruits, which are your raspberries and blackberries, and multiple fruit, which are your pineapples. Fruit maturation. As the fruit matures, it undergoes physiological changes that can impact its color, size, and nutritional content. In some cases, fruit becomes sweeter, softer, or even more aromatic as they ripen, making them more attractive to animals that aid in seed dispersal. The primary function of a fruit is to facilitate seed dispersal. Fruits can be dispersed through various mechanisms, such as using animal ingestion and transportation, wind, water, or even ballistic dispersal through mechanical means. This seems like a great place to end the um, technical section for this particular episode but stay tuned and we have a few little housekeeping things to talk about before we'll end the episode well i think we will end this episode there if you want more wildlife content be sure to check out our website at thebiomepodcast.com and consider becoming a member the majority of all profits go towards Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue. Please feel free to check them out at savingthesurvivors.org. There will be a lot more content and community of like-minded zoology enthusiasts on there, as well as giveaways, photos and contests and expert Q&As. Just remember that sometime through the next two weeks, we will be moving to a new host. So there might be a short window of time where the site is down. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter though, as well as get a free copy of our Birdwatcher's log, a printable form to log all of your bird sightings and easy to put in a binder. I use it myself and it's actually quite great. I actually use it for both birdwatching and for um, 
just mammal watching, I guess, showing what species I've seen in that particular um, outing. There is even a place to attach a picture or to draw one depending on your preference. Newsletters generally go out once a month and they contain highlights and surprises. Also, if you or anyone you know enjoys writing, be sure to consider writing a post for the guest writers section. We may get you to be on the podcast, so have a look at the site and read tips on writing a compelling article as well as how to get in touch with your or with our editors. A lot of new things this season with the new site hopefully coming out soon. So be sure to stick around and follow us on social media at biome.media. And don't forget, we love hearing from you. So please do keep in touch. For now, though, we'll be back in two weeks with episode 10. If you want to hear the podcast before it's released to the public, sign up for that membership and you can comment and listen while it is recorded. Until next time, though, always remember to ask questions.